don't know if y'all are excited as I am, but I'm, I've got my Bible open up here, and I see the end of Revelation on the page. So we are getting there. We're going to take a couple more weeks at least. We'll see where it takes us. We're going to finish up chapter 21 this morning. So if you could open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 21. We'll be starting in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got a few extras there on the back. Last week, we came through verse 8 of chapter 21, and we looked at what I kind of termed the eternal state, the state of affairs in eternity, and how things are going to be in eternity. And it's looking pretty good for us. You know, there's no death, no sorrow, no crying. Um, All of these things that are bad are not there. So it looks great. You know, all of creation is made anew. There's none of the old left behind. There's no remnant of it. It's all new, and it's all good. And most importantly than everything else, God is dwelling with us. And we'll look at that again this week. It comes back up. And we'll finish the rest of this chapter, and here in the last part of it, our actual place of residence and God's place of residence is looked at by John in more detail. So we'll get this picture on the page of where we will be spending eternity with Christ. You know, we use this phrase sometimes, fit for a king. Well, this place is fit for God. And for John, you know, I think that describing this place is very challenging because he certainly did the best he could. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's no doubt that what we have here is absolutely correct. But it would be difficult being a human looking at these things and trying to describe this heavenly scene in human language. That's hard. It truly defies understanding, and we'll see that. When what we're dealing with here clearly exists in more than the four dimensions than we inhabit right now. Besides that, we're dealing with this new creation. I, I, for one, have no idea what that's going to look like. It's completely new. The old creation that we see today has passed away. So the gold that we're going to see in this city is not the gold that we see today. It's a different kind of gold. And I'll call our gold old world gold. And this gold is new world gold. We'll talk about that more. Now, I told you last week that Summer and I are planning a little vacation with our family this summer, and we're going to take a trip up on an Alaskan cruise. It's going to be a good time. But when you plan a vacation, what's one of the absolute first things that you do? You look at the brochure. You look at pictures of it. You see what it's going to be like. You don't want to spend a week in a place that's going to be ratty and, you know, mold infested. You look at the pictures. That is one of the first things you do when you plan a vacation. You know, we actually looked up YouTube. We were like looking at these excursions that we could go on and looking at the cruise ship, getting excited about it. And this chapter is a description, a brochure, if you will, of our home. This is where we're going. And as we wade into this detailed description, you have to remember that where you are today is not your home. You know, we look around and we see a messed up world. It's not our home. This that we'll be looking at is our home. And don't let anyone talk you into believing that this is just symbolic language. This is not just symbolic language. Of course, there is symbolism contained in the architecture of this place. But this is a real place. 
And this is a real place that you'll be if you're a Christian, if you're born again. Let's read through the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall, be, there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And there's your brochure. It sounds pretty good. Um, and it sounds better the more we look at it and the more we talk about it. Verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me, that is John, and talked with me. So John recognizes this angel as being one of the same angels who poured out the bowl judgments several chapters ago. In fact, in his timeline, it was over a thousand years ago. He recognizes this angel that comes to talk to him. There are seven references to specific angelic activities after the pouring of the bowl judgments. That would be towards the end of the tribulation. So between then and now, there are seven specific angelic references. Verse 9 contains this seventh. It seems notable that the first and last of these angels, John identifies as ones who poured out the bowl judgments, the first and seventh. And both of those angels instructed John to come see a city. Remember, the first instructed John to come see the great harlot, the city of Babylon. This last one instructs him to come see the great city, 
the holy Jerusalem. And this city contains all of God's children inside it. This is God's crowning achievement. And that kind of sets up this contrast between these two cities. And they're both very different from each other. The first, Babylon, was thrown down in violence to disappear forever. Reference Revelation 18.21. The second city, this new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven in glory to endure forever. Babylon was both a literal city and the political and spiritual capital of man's wicked fancies. The new Jerusalem is both a literal city and serves as God's glorious political and spiritual capital. Both of these cities were also represented as women. One is a harlot, the other as a bride. There is this contrast. The angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Come is actually more accurately translated hither. Come hither, I will show you the bride. And again, it's the people inhabiting the city that are really the bride. It's not the city walls and the streets that are the bride. If I say I've left my heart in Dallas, you know, I don't mean that my heart's actually in Dallas. I don't mean that I really care that much about the roads. You know, there's probably somebody or like my family who's in Dallas that I wish I was with. Kind of the, the same idea here. And I really like this analogy of a bride because God hates divorce. And if we are his bride, we can be very assured of our permanent position with him. I don't mind being the bride. I can handle that. There's security in knowing that this is where we'll spend eternity and nothing can take that away from us. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It seems like when John first mentioned this city, he saw it coming down out of heaven from God. We saw that last week. And it seems like there he was viewing it from afar off. He was viewing it kind of removed from its presence, if you will. But then this angel carries him away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and it seems like he's closer. He's getting a, a better description of this city. This phrase, and he carried me away in the spirit, is the same phrase that we've seen a couple of other places in Revelation. And I'll let you check those down. One was in the very beginning. Then you have at least one uh, somewhere else. I think there's two others. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Now, there is some disagreement here as to whether John was taken to a physical mountain on earth on this new earth, or if this is simply a description of some kind of special vantage point that he and the angel had access to in spirit. Is it a literal mountain on the new earth, or is it a spiritual vantage point? You remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he took him up on what is called a high mountain. Luke 4, 5 reads, Then the devil, taking him on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's an interesting way to phrase that. And if that was a literal mountain, I don't know how you could show him all of the kingdoms of the world. That seems to be a vantage point that Satan used to tempt Christ. And isn't it wild 
how our vantage point changes the way we see things. Based on where you're standing, you can see something totally different from someone standing right beside you looking at the same exact thing. The vantage point changes everything. Satan took Jesus up to see everything the world could offer him. And God gives us this view in this chapter of everything he can offer us. There's two different vantage points here. So we would do well to ask ourselves which of these vantage points we're using. Which one are you viewing your life from? What the world can offer you or what God can offer you? Are your eyes staying fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and all that he has to offer? We saw last week exactly what we are set to inherit with Jesus. Do you remember what that was? Verse 7. It says that he who overcomes shall inherit all things. That's what we are set to inherit, all things. Satan will tell you that he can offer the same. He can offer all things, but that is a lie. There is no bit of truth in that. So I'm not really sure if this mountain was physical, but whatever and wherever it was, it offered John this spectacular view of this great city. And he goes on to describe what he saw. It was descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. John speaks of this city as having the glory of God. And for one, the glory of God speaks to this Shekinah glory, this shining. And it literally radiates from within the city where God is. But I think that this is also a reference to the appearance of the city like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. He says her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. If you remember all the way back in chapter 4, John makes another reference to this jasper stone. When he was transported to the throne room of heaven in spirit, there's another one of those uses, and he describes the one who sat on the throne like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And a sardius stone is in a list that we have later in this chapter as well. Now in chapter 21, we're given a nugget. We're told by John that this jasper stone appears clear as crystal. So we may think of a jasper as green, but not here. John says that it's clear as crystal. And that gives us a bit of insight into what that throne room scene looked like in chapter 4. In verse 18 of chapter 21, John says, The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. So jasper is clear like a diamond, and a diamond may actually be what's in view here when he says a jasper. And the gold that's used in the construction of the city is also clear. So with God radiating his glory from the midst of the city, there's hardly anything that would diminish that light from shining through. I mean, we can try to picture this, but it does us hardly no good. This is beyond our comprehension. We'll see there are some colored precious stones used in this city's construction. So this city is emitting God's glorious light with streaks of beautiful color running through it. I'm sure this was a sight to behold for John. If I was writing, I would need another reminder to keep writing. I would just be fried. This is really what your eyes were made to see. Not anything in this world. This is what we were made for. 
You ain't seen nothing yet. Literally seen anything yet. Verse 12, also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. In John's day, nearly every city of any real importance would have been walled. And that would have been there for mostly protection against anyone trying to lay siege against the city. But there will be no enemies of God in the new creation. There's no one to guard against. And the gates that we'll see always stay open. So it's not like this wall is providing much protection anyways. So what in the world is this for? Well, no doubt this great and high wall speaks to God's strength and our eternal security. Not only can anyone not get in who's not supposed to be there, but everyone who is supposed to be there is constantly welcomed. The gates are never closed. We always have free access to this city. What are these angels that John says are at the gates doing there? They're not guarding them. There's nothing to guard against. Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. That's you. That's me. They're ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Are these angels set there to serve us in some capacity? It seems likely. I'm not sure. But I do know that whatever they're doing here, that is their eternal purpose. That's what they were created for so long ago, is to be right here at this gate doing whatever they're doing. I can't wait to see what it is. Of course, there are a lot of unknowns as we come through this chapter because we just have no reference point for a lot of what we're seeing here. And names written on them, that is written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. You remember back in Genesis, Jacob was called Israel after he wrestled with God. And what a picture this is. It's a reminder to us that it was by Israel that we can be grafted in to the family of God. That, that we can even come in. The names of the tribes of Israel are emblazoned on every entrance and exit to this city. Romans 9, 4, and 5 is a little bit wordy, but bear with me. It reads, Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So, it was through the Israelites that Christ came in the flesh. We know he was descended from the tribe of Judah. It was first by patriarchal ministry of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, who we know was later called Israel, that we Gentiles could enter into this family of God, that we could inherit the same blessings that the Jews could. And if you want more context on this idea of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together, the Gentiles being grafted in to the family of God, I want you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. All in one sitting, just read through those three chapters. Um, it will give you a great deal of insight into the relationship between Israel and the church and God. Verse 13, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Three gates 
are facing each of the four cardinal directions with one name of a tribe on each gate. We're faced here with these 12 gates. And there will be a number of other 12s coming up in this chapter. And I want you to keep in mind that 12 is a governmental number. We see the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles that were set to govern the church, the 24 elders, 24 being a multiple of 12, they represented the church in heaven, and Solomon appointed 12 governors. And that's just to name a few of these 12s in the Bible. 12 gates to this city. What does the governmental number of 12 have to do with God's city? Well, it's the perfection of government. This is the perfect government, the perfect place. Everything is perfection. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the foundations of the wall have the names of the apostles, 12 of them, inscribed on them. And I want you to take note that there are 12 apostles. You know, there are some that claim to be apostles today. But there are only 12 with the authority to write scripture and deliver revelation. And there's only 12 written on the foundations of this wall. And these are whom the church was built upon. And their names are now permanently inscribed on the foundation of the city of God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. Remarkable. The foundation that the apostles set is what we build on still today. Of course, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And I love this picture of Jesus as the cornerstone. It's not what we think of as the last stone in the arch. That came later um, chronologically than this. The cornerstone is the stone that would be placed down and carefully oriented so that you could place all of the other stones in the foundation off of that one cornerstone. It was a sort of true north, if you will. It was the stone that all the other stones were built off of. That's what this chief cornerstone is. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. So this angel is carrying a reed to use to measure the city, just like the other angel gave John a reed and told him to measure the temple in chapter 11. Except this time, as is fitting with this context, the angel has a gold reed. It's not any ordinary reed. It's a gold reed to measure this holy city. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured with the city, he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Immediately, something jumps out at you. We have three dimensions here to measure this city, length, breadth, and height and they're all equal. This is a cube. This city is fashioned as a cube. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Some people will try to make this city a pyramid shape with a square for the base and the height of the pyramid equal to a side of the base. 
I just can't get on board with that. Um, we see throughout history the pyramid has been used in connection to pagan worship. And, of course, you've got the pyramids of Egypt. That's probably the first thing that we all think of. But you've also got the ziggurats of Mexico and all of South America. And, obviously, the Tower of Babel was a pyramid. Um, so it seems unlikely, at best, that God would bring his people to dwell in this kind of symbol of pagan worship. You know, I, I don't see that happening. The cube, on the other hand, has long been used in conjunction with God's presence. And we see that in Scripture. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple was a square. It was directly specified to Moses that he should build the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies in a square. We know that the Holy of Holies is uh, this compartment in the tabernacle proper that would actually house the presence of God. It's where he would tabernacle or dwell with his people. He literally dwelt between the two outstretched wings of the cherubim sitting on top of the mercy seat. God dwelt in this cube-shaped section of the tabernacle, and which was later moved to the temple. So it's a cube. It's not a pyramid. And the size of this city is staggering. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs. Now, I know that means absolutely nothing to us because we don't know how big a furlong is. Being a cube, each side of this city would measure 12,000 furlongs. A furlong is equivalent to 600 Greek feet and roughly equivalent to 607 English feet. So if you're thinking of a furlong, it's 607 feet. And in terms of miles, this would mean that each side of the city is approximately 1,380 miles. And that's a little further than the distance from Los Angeles, California to Dallas, Texas. That's a huge city. You take that distance and you square it. That would be how we measure a city today, in squared, in two dimensions. So you take that and square it. It's already huge. But you take that distance from Los Angeles to Dallas and you cube it gives it another dimension, and <laughs> you've effectively increased the space, the holding capacity of this city by a great deal. Henry Morris worked out all of the math on this to see how much room the redeemed of history would have in this glorious city. And he did so in his book, The Revelation Record, which I'd highly recommend. And although we can't know exactly how many people will be there to inhabit this city, we can make a very rough estimate. So these are Henry Morris's calculations. He calculated that the number of people who have lived between Adam's time and our time is around 40 billion with a B. And we can assume that about that many will live during the millennium with the longer lifespans and we'll see this big population explosion. So 40 billion and 40 billion, that's 80 billion. And we can account for another 20 billion who have passed away before or soon after birth that we expect to see in this city. That comes out to about 100 billion members of the human race. That's everyone who has ever lived, past, present, and future. For our purposes here, we'll assume that 20% of these people were saved. That's one in five people, and that's probably a little bit generous. Um, but, of course, that number is strictly a guess. We don't know exactly how many are saved. But Jesus did make it clear that the majority of people would not be saved. In Matthew seven thirteen, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So we'll assume 
of the population of humans is saved. This new Jerusalem would have to accommodate 20 billion redeemed residents. We'll also assume that only 25% of the city is used for the mansions of its inhabitants. Okay, so you've got this huge city. We've got 20 billion people we're having to house. And now we're taking away three quarters of the city for other things like public buildings, streets, parks, etc. So we're working with a quarter of this city. And when worked out, each person's allotted space would be about 75 acres cubed. It's going to be pretty roomy. I think we'll be all right. So each person could have an average space equal to a cube with 75 acres on each face of it. And, you know, that sounds pretty good. Now, I do think we have a good reason to believe that not everyone's mansion is going to be the same size. That's just an average figure. But it does help us kind of conceptualize the sheer size of that city. All of the redeemed fitting in a quarter of this city, each person of the 20 billion gets 75 acres cubed. That's for what that's worth to you. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. First thing that jumps out at you is the 144 cubits, 12 times 12. Okay, so we've got another instance of the 12. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, that is, of an angel. John wants to make sure that we know he's speaking in literal terms when it comes to this measurement. So he clarifies that these are the same cubits that a man would use to measure. We just saw the dimensions of the length and height of this wall, that is 1,380 miles. So what is this measurement of 144 cubits that pertains to the wall? Well, this seems to be the thickness of the wall as measured by this angel. A cubit is about 18 inches, and typically it's measured from the the end of your index finger to your elbow in an average-sized male. So about 18 inches we'll use for this cubit. 144 cubits comes out to about 72 yards, or about three-quarters of a football field. That's the thickness of the wall. There has never been a wall constructed like this. I hope that that's obvious. This completely eclipses the Great Wall of China, which is an average of about four to five yards thick. The scale of this new city is unimaginable. And it's all made of precious materials. Like That just blows my mind. And it seems that you'll be able to get around at the speed of thought. Because we're not bound by the same laws of physics that we are today. You probably noticed that these dimensions are measured differently than we usually measure cities on Earth. And that's because we're dealing with more dimensions. You know, we typically talk about our cities in square miles. Well, this is cubed miles will be governed by a totally new set of rules concerning physics and nature. The construction of its wall was of jasper, diamond. Ladies, don't don't look at your fingers. You'll be disappointed. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. So the city itself is made of jasper, And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. So it seems the main building material is pure gold. Not overlay with gold. Pure gold. And this whole structure appears clear, like diamonds mixed with this purest gold imaginable. 
And we actually don't even know what pure gold looks like. We've never been able to purify it that far. But there are suppositions that if we could refine it to such a degree, it would actually appear clear. And you can flatten it out. Very purified gold, you can flatten out and you can see through it. But even then, we're dealing with old earth gold in our minds. What John is seeing here is new earth gold. It's something that we haven't even dealt with yet, and there's really no way that we can actually know about it. But you know what? Whatever the gold looks like here, I'm going to be good with it. You know, I'm going to be perfectly fine with whatever it's like. Now, verse 19 says, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first was jasper, and it goes through this list of precious stones. These are the same foundations, as it talked about in verse 14, that have the names of the 12 apostles on them. And these are the structural support for the walls of the city. Can you imagine all of these huge slabs of precious stones being used for structural support? You know, here we use tiny little precious stones as items of adornment, and we humans kill each other over those tiny little fragments of these stones. And here, they're used for structural support. It's unimaginable. And we'll go through these stones very quickly, and I'll describe what they probably looked like. But I'm also going to save you a lot of time here, so pay attention to this. There are truckloads of material written about these stones and how they correlate with other lists of stones in the Bible. To save you hours of reading, I'll tell you that there's no apparent correlation between the order of these stones and those in the priestly breastplate, that's in Exodus 28, or the heavenly garden in Ezekiel 28. So there's no apparent correlation between the order of these stones. Some of the stones do appear in all three lists. You've got six of them, jasper, sapphire, emerald, sardis, beryl, and topaz. But no particular patterns or reasons for any particular sequence is easily discernible at this time. That's not to say something won't come up. It just hasn't yet. You'll even get different descriptions of the colors of some of these stones but I'm going to give you what Tim LaHaye says in his book, Revelation Unveiled. So the first little set of stones, you have jasper, which we've talked about. Probably a diamond, but it is definitely clear as crystal. Sapphire would be similar to the diamond in hardness, but blue in color. Chalcedony is an agate stone from Chalcedon in Turkey. And it's thought to be sky blue with streaks of other colors running through it. Emerald is bright green in, cl- in color. Sardonyx is this red and white stone. Those are interesting colors, biblically. Red and white. Sardius. We actually talked about the Sardius briefly when we came through the letter to the church at Sardis. If you remember back there, it was a deep red jewel. And it was also used to describe the glory of God on his throne in Revelation 4.3. Chrysolite. And this was a transparent stone with a golden hue. It was somewhat different from the pale green chrysolite of today. Beryl would be probably a sea green color. Topaz, a yellow-green and transparent stone. Chrysoprase would be another shade of green. Jacinth would be this beautiful violet color. And amethyst would commonly be purple. So you've got most of the city, which is clear, but the foundation of the walls 
are made up of these precious stones. And look right here, it says, the foundations of the wall of the city, verse 19, were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. So the bulk of the material for these foundations are these stones, but each one is ornamented with all different kinds of stones. So you have the glory of God shining from within the city, shining through its clear construction, through these colored stones, streaking out into God's new creation. And it's nothing like we've ever seen before. And this is where we're going. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. Now, these gates must have been massive on the side of this giant wall. And it says that each gate was an individual pearl. It must have been some oyster that squeezed that out, you know? You know, God made the oysters, and I'm sure that he can make these pearls, but I just feel bad for the oyster. But in all seriousness, the, the pearl is a wonderful analogy of the church. We saw it in Matthew 13 when Jesus spoke of the pearl of great price. I'll read that to you real quick just because it's very short and applicable. The parable of the pearl of great price, Matthew 13, starting in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The pearl is unique among jewels because it's the only one that's made by a living organism as a response to an irritation. It's then removed from its place of growth to become an item of adornment. And John's description of these pearly gates would have probably caught the attention of his Jewish readers. The pearl was a Gentile jewel. They weren't precious to the Jews because the oyster was not a kosher food. It was not kosher. But the Gentiles of John's day loved pearls, and they actually considered them to be one of the most valuable jewels. And that just because they involved hardship to produce. So they were seen as very valuable. It seems that the church is represented here by these gates of pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So again, this picture of clear gold, clear streets, comes to our attention. Then John goes on to say, this very well could be the most staggering thing about this city, especially in John's mind. He says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No temple. You know, we're kind of used to not having a temple. And I think we're a little bit spoiled by that fact. But most redeemed people from most of history will have a temple. Whether in the Old Testament times or in the millennium, all of those people will have access to a temple. The Old Testament temple, you know, the tabernacle and Solomon's temple was looking forward to what Christ would do. The temple in the millennium is a memorial temple, looking back on what Christ had done. From the very beginning of humanity, God has wished to fellowship with man. You remember in the garden, he walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And they enjoyed that close fellowship with each other. But Adam forfeited that close fellowship when he sinned. Then we see that Cain and Abel both knew that God required a sacrifice in order for them to fellowship with him. 
this sacrificial approach to God was used by both the antediluvian and the post-diluvian patriarchs, that is, those before and after the flood, up to the time of Moses. And during Moses' days, God established the tabernacle, where he dwelt in the midst of his people. But even then, only one person, that would be the high priest, could enter the most holy place where God literally dwelt. And even the high priest could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. And after great care had been taken in their rituals and cleansing practices, God still longed for a closer fellowship with men. This dwelling place of God was transferred from the tabernacle to Solomon's temple, temporarily. Then Christ came and tabernacled among his creation, God dwelling in the flesh amongst his people. Shortly after Christ ascended back to heaven, in roughly 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. But before that, the Holy Spirit was sent into the world. So Christ ascends. The Holy Spirit is sent into the world and into the hearts of those who accept Christ. Now God dwells in the hearts of his people. In the kingdom age, the memorial temple will be there. But Christ will also be there to rule. God now dwells among his people as a ruler. But in this eternal city, there is no longer a need for a temple or a dwelling place of God, because God himself will be there with his son, with the Holy Spirit, with us. In the fullness of his glory, he will dwell with his children. And that's how it should have been at the beginning. For all of time, that's how it should have been. That's God's intention was to dwell with us. That's what he wants. This makes the entire holy city one grand and glorious temple, Naos, a dwelling place of God. And it makes perfect sense that this city would be cubed because throughout history that we just traced, God has dwelt in the, in the Holy of Holies, most holy place, which is a cube. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now, do pay attention. This doesn't actually say that there is no sun or moon, but there is no need for them to give their light. Now, it is certainly possible that God doesn't bother creating another sun and moon because there's no need for them. So maybe there is no sun and moon here. Maybe there is. Um, I don't know. But John, uh, 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God himself will provide more than enough light to illuminate this mostly clear city by his very presence in the middle of it. Try to think of it this way. What we experience today is the light of creation. It's been formed and assembled for us. Christ is the original, uncreated light. He was light before this light that we experience was formed. What will his light look like? And honestly, you can forget how it looks. I want to know how it feels. How does being in the light of Christ feel? I'm excited for that. Now we come to verse 24, and nobody has any idea what it means. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much going to leave it at that because there's no really solid answer for what that means. I'm not going to add to it. I'm not going to take away from it. 
Verse 25. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So these gates are always open. Um, They're allowing the redeemed uninhibited access to the city and to God himself. There are no enemies to keep out. The enemies of God, remember, have already been consigned to the lake of fire. Imagine no night and never getting tired. You don't have to sleep. We're all in our resurrection bodies. No darkness at all in this city. Does that mean there's no shadows? Maybe. Verse 26, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Now that kind of follows the same thought as verse 25, and there's not really a good explanation that I can give you. The only thing I would say is look into it for yourself if you want to know. Henry Morris does write a little bit on it in his book, Revelation Record, but at best, it's conjecture, and we're not sure what exactly that means. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no risk for this city to be defiled by an impure thought or an impure motive. All of its inhabitants have long been conformed to the image of God's Son. They've purified themselves even as he is pure. There is no risk for defilement here. You know, we look around today and... All you have to do is flip on the news, open your phone. You'll see, well, defilement, lies. Everything that is not in this new city. We look around at a broken and fallen world. And I don't know about you, but I long for something more than this. You know, if this is all there is, Man, I don't even know what we're doing. I long for something more. This is the more. Chapter 21 of Revelation is the more. This is every promise of God fulfilled. You know, we look at this Bible today and we flip through it. We can find prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet. When we inhabit this place, we won't be able to do that anymore. You will not be able to reference your Bible, which you won't need because Jesus, the word, is there. You won't be able to reference it and find anything that is left unfulfilled. Everything that God has promised will have come to pass. That boggles my mind. Looking at a fallen world, we long for something more. This is it. This is everything that you could ever want and more. And it's your inheritance in Christ. Not a single person that will be inhabiting this city is there because they deserve it. Not a single person who inhabits the city is there because they deserve it. It is all because they have accepted Christ. They have accepted the gift that's already been extended. They didn't have to work for it. They didn't earn it. They're there because God loves them. And he sent his son into a broken, fallen world to die for them. And they chose to accept that gift unto eternal life and unto this glorious city. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. I don't have to earn it. 
I don't have to deserve it because nobody does deserve it. But you do have to make a decision. You have to decide to put Christ first. You know, if you have not accepted Christ, you sit on the throne of your life. You are directing your next move. You're directing what you should and shouldn't do. Everything you do is because you want to. You have to make the decision to place Christ on the throne of your life. It's not enough for him to just be your savior. He must be your Lord. You must be able to come to him and say, Lord. If you haven't done that, this is the perfect morning to do that. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, come talk to me after service. We'll get it sorted out for you. That is the most important decision that you will make in your life. If you would, please bow your head and your hearts with me, and we'll wrap up this study. Thank you.